When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to New Books in Literary Studies. My name is Hal Kos, a host at New Books in Poetry. And today I'm very excited to be talking to Virginia Jackson, Chair of Rhetoric at UCI, about her new book, Before Modernism, Inventing American Lyric. Hi, Virginia. Thank you for joining us. Uh, how are you today? Hi, I'm great. Thank you. Wonderful. Could you, um, usually we ask guests just to start by telling us a little bit about themselves and in particular, I guess, how you came to work on poetry and the history of poetics. Um, Hi, well, I'm so glad to be here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I, um, yeah, I've worked on poetics for a long time. I actually, in graduate school was in comparative literature and I was very much a kind of theory of poetics person, especially French poetics, as it turned out. So I was writing a dissertation on the imaginary book in Mallarmé and Dickinson, a really, you know, kind of late 80s, early 90s sort of complete project. And I got very taken with what Dickinson's poems actually were. That is these weird manuscripts, you know, that had bugs folded into them and things like that. And so became progressively less interested in the imaginary book than in these things. And so from that, I think uh, my interest in, of all things, 19th century American poetics emerged because um, that wasn't something I had any interest in or any education in. At that point, people weren't really teaching 19th century American poetics other than Emerson and Whitman and Dickinson. So um, when I start, started, is this the kind of answer you wanted? This is great, yeah. Well, not <laughs> yes. and not. Uh, <laughs> Uh, and um, uh, when I first started teaching it, I copied 19th century anthologies um, because there weren't any available. You know, there just weren't. Um, and so, uh, so you know, gradually started to educate myself in 19th century American poetics and, and became really fascinated with this occlusion. Like, why did it go away? You know, why was there such a rejection of this stuff, which seemed even major figures like Longfellow, who, you know, was kind of like, it's kind of like they're not being Tennyson or something, um, you know, or Wordsworth, like it didn't make any sense. And so, um, you know, but then I've always, I've always been involved with contemporary poetics too. So I also write about 21st century people. Um, And so, you know, I kind of, I don't know, ended up being a 19th and 21st century (laughs) (laughs) first <laughs> I kind of skipped the 20th skip the 20th okay yeah. and but um it's interesting to hear you talk about that though because that sort of experience of strangeness no it seems to be an abiding thing right you talk often and in different places about how do we know that the thing in front of us is a poem and what do we mean by that so that seems to be something that kind of almost comes out of that initial experience of of looking at these 
texts and thinking and thinking what are these and how how are we to read them right yes yes very much so yes absolutely and um i mean i think that the strangeness right is built in in some ways to the contemporary reception of poetry you know who reads it how do people read it why do you go and read a poem of all things and uh and and truly you know uh, i mean as everyone knows in the 19th century versus the you know is the set of most read genres right the popular genres not strange at all to people but strange to us so yeah i think you're right i'm attracted by that by that strangeness yeah great um so let's move on and begin talking about um this new book before before modernism um i was trying to think of where we could start and i thought that you know early on you 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 talk in the book about the idea of undisciplining um so to, to undiscipline our our kind of 20th and 21st century century disciplines and their assumptions and um how they um color and condition the way we we, we look back at, at um these histories um so i know it's a big question but maybe we could start with what are, what are some of the assumptions of poetry studies and, and the history of poetics which this book kind of moves or is interested in undisciplining yeah so so undisciplining um i think that it comes out of a conversation um you know, it's happening really in Vic more in Victorian studies these days about undisciplining Victorian studies, but but also Christina Sharp um, has suggested that in Black studies, in order to think about um, Black studies in relation to the history of literary forms, right, we'd have to undiscipline the way that we're basically trained to think about these things. And so I think I wanted to suggest something like that. But in the case of the history of American poetry, as I was just saying, um, you know, we don't really have histories of American poetry. Um, so there are a lot of assumptions in the discipline. Um, and I'm really talking here about the discipline of um, Anglo-American literary studies. Uh, I think, you know, part of the reason this is a book about American lyric is um, from a historical poetics perspective, and I'll say more about historical poetics in a moment, um, it becomes very hard to make statements about theory of the lyric, for example, without a place and time for the kind of lyric or as in my terms, lyricization, how things become lyrics. Um, in the first place. And so it became a book about American lyric because, you know, you can't write about all places and all times. Um, and I became especially interested, as I'd said, when I was working on Dickinson in 19th century American poetics and the way in which that history was just left out so that in the discipline of Anglo-American studies, as at least in my education, we jump from the British Romantics to the American modernists with maybe a little influence of Whitman in between, you know, um, uh, you know, free verse, but, but, but really it's the Shelley to Stevens kind of model. And, um, and I thought, well, why, why, 
<laughs> and, you know, were these American poets just bad? And and to a certain extent, you know, I think that has been a, a view that a lot of them are just bad or the word really often used is conventional. You know, read a poem by Longfellow and then read a poem by Keats and like, who would you rather read? And and I I get that, actually. Um, and we can talk about the autonomy of the aesthetic object in a minute as well, you know, what that means for thinking about poems. But but I do think that, um, you know, there's this, you can't really account for the history of American poetry and leave a long century out, you know, kind of nothing happens until the first issue of Poetry Magazine in 1912 or something. Yeah. But maybe can we pick up on that? That question of conventional is quite fascinating, though, because, I mean, conventional is a criticism, as in if you read something and you think it's bad and you say it's conventional, you could almost turn it around and say that something that is very successfully conventional establishes new conventions, though, and that seems to be the ground on which a lot of historical poetics um, moves, no? Um, is this question of, of, of what it means uh, now to, to, to spot certain conventions and what it meant then. Uh, yeah. And maybe you could just kind of talk about historical poetics in, in particular as a, as a project. Yeah. So historical poetics is something that a group of us, really, it was just uh, people working in 19th century, again, Anglo-American, mostly Victorianists, and then people working in American 19th century poetics of the few of us. And uh, we just started reading things together because we realized that we just didn't know. We just hadn't read them. Um, and especially um, uh, prosody. Um, so out of historical poetics, a whole discipline has merged of um, historical prosody, Yopi Prince, Meredith Martin, especially um, working on you know, what it, what the, you know, for Yopi's work, for example, what the hexameter mania was and why people were cared so much about the difference between quantitative meter and accentual syllabic meter. So we started reading around and realizing that, of course, the discourses in which these conventions, as you say, emerge were not of the discourses in which, you know, that we're thinking of when we're reading 19th century poem. They're not our discourses about poetry, right? They influenced our discourses, but they're not. And so we were, we were really um, fascinated to read so much 19th century, you know, debate, really all this, all this emerges from these furious 19th century debates about poetics. And that became very fascinating to us because like, why do people care so much? Like, why is Poe so crazy about the Spondy? Like, why does he care? Why does he care that Longfellow wrote bad hexameters? Like, what's up with that, right? Why did, you know, why did Arnold think that, you know, English hexameters were barbaric? Like, why? Like, what what's at stake? And, um, and so historical poetics really grew out of those questions and really changed the way that we thought about, as you say, a convention, what was an important convention? What wasn't an important convention? How things got made into conventions, for example. Yeah. And uh, I want to bring lyric into this now, I think, because thinking about convention and the book is about inventing American lyrics. So could you talk a little bit about what's at stake um, 
with uh, the lyric in, in 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 your work, and and also in a way because it feels like the the um, let's say you kind of focus on the lyric for the last <laughs> a long time now. No, as you're describing in the book. Um, uh, you know, speaks to all kinds of anxieties and covers all kinds of um, uh, uh, cultural problematics. And so, uh, yeah, can, if we could bring, um, bring bring lyric into this, that would be great. Yes. Um, so, I mean, I think that my focus on lyric was a bit of an accident in the sense that when I wrote the book on Dickinson, it seemed that what happened um, to those pieces I was talking about before, those those scraps wrapped around bugs and um and all and letter and poetry and letters and all the things she wrote um love letters especially um were edited so she she died in 1886 um she's posthumously published in 1890 in volume form for the first time and then of course there are a number of editions until the so-called complete edition in 1955 it seemed to me progressively that these poems were made into lyrics, that is short poems, you know, in the conventional definition, the romantic definition, brief poems of subjective expression. That was really the model used for editing Dickinson. And um, and so, so in that work, I became really interested in like what this thing is that <laughs> that we call lyric um and as you know you know that's led to a number of debates and so um so in my definition for the princeton encyclopedia of poetry and poetics i try to say that you know lyric mean, means different things at different times and again this is a kind of historical poetics definition of lyric um lyric for a long time wasn't an you know, wasn't especially considered a major um, verse form. Lyrics can be minor, right? Or lyrics could be song or various song forms. It wasn't really until um, pretty much late 18th century and different people have different theories about how lyric became one of, by the time Goethe writes, right, the divan, one of the the tripartite structure of literature, he says, is narrative drama lyric. And then he kind of retro projects that and says, you know, that's an ancient division. And as Gerard Jeanette writes in The Architect, um, you know, that's not, lyric isn't part of an ancient division um it's it's a it's a modern idea uh and so i became really interested in how this modern idea you know why how and why this modern idea came about and um and so you know i wrote that definition uh, yopi prince and i co-edited the lyric theory reader in which we collected a bunch of 20th mostly 20th century some 21st century essays on lyric theory just to show really that the reason we made it an anthology rather than uh although there's a lot of our prose in that book um is just to show that everybody means something different by lyric i mean it's amazing in that book right everybody seems to mean something different right you know we like to say you know adorno means lyric with a k you know the german the german lyric um the hegelian lyric but you know when um, uh, say Amir Mufti is um, writing about Adorno in relation to the Hustle, 
um, that's really a very different lyric. And, and so, you know, everybody means something different when they say it. It seems to be a term with an enormous amount of elasticity. It is also, <clears throat> I mean, I can, I can see that elasticity, but there are some kind of, let's say, predominant um, characteristics you know, that you kind of pull out in the book. So, um, I mean, and it's something I've encountered as well. You know, this sort of, um, I mean, I've noted it down here as a sort of foundational notion for 20th century and 21st century thought in Western poetics, which is the lyric speaker that is organized around an abstraction, right? This sort of, I think you describe it in the book at one point as recessive, no? And that phrase also eloquent absence. Um, could you uh, talk a little bit about that particular uh, kind of mid, mid 20th century onwards, I guess, um, uh, association between lyric an abstraction, and then m maybe we can come on to the the question of race and racialization in terms of that, which the book uh, dives into. Yeah, so um, I think that the so you know often when I teach nineteenth century um, uh, Anglo American poetics, I'm always telling the students, you know, it's the poet, not the speaker, but they are always saying the speaker. And the reason they're always saying the speaker is because they're educated to say the speaker. Um, they're educated not to say it's the biographical poet, right? But, I do it when I'm writing all the time. I have to, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah what else right? do you use? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. What <laughs> else do you use, right? Like you take the speaker away from people and they can't read a poem mm -hmm. um, because it's the organizing principle. Um, so yeah, I became really interested in where does that come from? Why why do we think they're speakers? Because pretty clear, right? That there's not, I mean, you know, think of any 19th century poem that you know really well, right? Um, you know, Keats's Odes, for example, that's not a speaker. Uh, and so, so I thought, well, how do we get that idea? And, um, and so, of course, there's a literary critical genealogy. You know, the literary critical genealogy really has to do with Cleanth Brooks, um, um, you could say it's implicit in the practical criticism with Richards, but it's really the Americans that push the speaker idea. And um, uh, Steve Newman thinks that Brooks got it uh, from ballad discourse, um, this idea of a speaker. I think that's an interesting idea. And certainly in the American context, the the literary critical line that goes from um, Henry Wadsworth Longfellow at Harvard, who who founds the American version of comparative literature there in the 1840s on Goethe's Weltliteratur models. So he really makes an idea of world poetry in the middle of the 19th century. And then Child, Francis Child, then makes um, the Scottish and English ballad project um, on the basis of the Volksgeist, they, they all go to Germany for graduate school, right? And get this kind of Volksgeist education and and come back and, and look for the American folk. It's another way to think about it. And so Child collects the Scottish and English ballads um, in order to you know, really establish this kind of white American folk. And, um, and then this guy named Francis Barton Gummery that nobody reads anymore, because um, he kind of gets, he's, he's actually been owned by the white nationalists a bit. He's a, 
he he is very popular theorist of the ballad and of democracy and poetry and that he's like the president of the MLA things like that um and, and the turn into the 20th century and he's he he is uh it emphasizes that the ballad has the speaker which is all of us right we're all the speaker of the the folk is the speaker of the ballad and so in that sense there there there's a kind of groundwork of the idea that the speaker speaks for all of us and then um uh brooks uh, when he's doing his infall um in england he writes his master he writes that on um on gum on balance on that idea and then in his work in understanding poetry, that textbook, right, that educates generations of Americans anyway, um, into the close reading of poetry. Um, it's all about the dramatic speaker. Um, so, so that's the literary critical genealogy on the American side. Okay. And then kind of the next step might be, how does that speaker, uh, come to be an alienated one? Why do we think of it as, a speaker, I mean, there's the kind of Adorno, Benjamin, um, the kind of shock of the modern no and, and and that being a retreat, but that seems to be the next important piece of the, of the story, no? It does. Um, so when I started writing before modernism, when I got a National Endowment of the Humanities grant to write it, a couple of them actually, it was a project about why 19th century American poetry is popular, right? And poetry isn't popular anymore in the same way. And so um, there was this kind of public poetry project discourse behind it that, and, um, and the more I worked on it, the more I realized that one of the reasons that 19th century American poetry has faded from view is that, you know, it's the 19th century. It's, it's, it's full of the problems of, you know, racism and genocide that is the, you know, that is the American 19th century. Um, so, um, so I was very struck at the kind of anxiety of, you know, so Longfellow's very white version of a world literature. Like, why is that? Why does he need to do that? And so, so the social intent that the the Adorno you were alluding to, I repeat that phrase from Lyric and Society a few times in the book that lyric is the expression of a social antagonism. Um, the social antagon there are many, of course, social antagonisms in the middle of the American nineteenth century, but I had never seen someone think about racialization as formative of what we now think of as poetic form um, or of the way in which all these genres. And then, so my theory at the, at the beginning of the project was what I call lyricization. So the way that all kinds of popular genres, elegies and odes and ballads and drinking songs and, epitaphs and hymns, especially and odes that are popular in the 19th century, um, 
get mushed really into the, a, a very lyricized idea of poetry at the beginning of the 20th century. That is, you know, like a, a thing, something that's called poetry in general, and that is identified with a person, or as you say, a single speaker, rather than all these popular genres. And the book I thought I was writing, I was trying to figure out how that, like, why does that happen? Um, and uh, it more and more seemed to me that it happens on the basis of racialization, um, which is kind of obvious in American, you know, anybody who does American history would, would think everything happens on the basis of racialization. But I just didn't think about it in relation to the, the process of lyricization. And so, um, so that's what happened. I, I started reading um, and, and, and I read also... Um, and Ivy Wilson, especially, and the and Matt Sandler, the people who are doing the amazing archival work um, in um, thinking about nineteenth-century Black poetics, really changed my view as well. So once Ivy made James Whitfield's work available um, and Matt Sandler's book, I was already working on this project, but all talking to Matt Sandler by the time his book came out on the black romantic revolution. And once I began to reread the work of Phyllis Wheatley, who is just, you know, everything and everybody is kind of rediscovering that now. I think Wheatley was just the, 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 the emerging readings of Wheatley, especially by young scholars um, at the moment are just amazing. So, um, so, so, I mean, it was a kind of process, uh, for me, a long process of first trying to think about 19th century public poetry, especially, and then realizing the kinds of interventions that black poets were making and what happened to, American poetics as a result of those interventions and, and what is essentially that antagonism in the history of American poetry. Yeah. Which is of course to historicize what otherwise becomes a kind of second order abstraction, no, as in the lyric is an alienated person right. of a social antagonism, right. but we're asking what social um, antagonisms. Like and, the second and order when, abstraction no? um, of the speaker. Maybe, uh, in particular. To try and give some sense of, the real fine grain of the, the, the argument in the book, um, we could turn to uh, a, a few of the chapters and talk in a, a bit more detail about, about them and some of the figures in them. So um, uh, the, uh, the, the chapter on it and Plato, for example, that, that um, you, you, you begin the book with. And I, I also want to come on to um, the genre of person, which seems very much related to what we were just saying, but maybe you could just talk about why you wanted to start with um, Plato and what, and what um, how she kind of sets the scene for the, the, the discussions in the book that follow. So, um, I, you know, it, I, part of this project is thinking about the common, right? Like what kind of poetry was just everyday common poetics in the 19th century. And, um, and so Plato, um, I think is a really good representative, right? So I'm not, I don't mean to diminish her author function at all. I mean, she's a really interesting 
um, author, she has only one book when, you know, she's very young and then she herself kind of disappears. Like we don't know what happens to her. Um, she's probably of a mixed indigenous and black heritage. We don't know that for sure either. We don't know that much about her. So um, I, but what I'm really interested in her poetics is that this is really just kind of common, ordinary, um, and, 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 Im and important for that reason, I think, Black poetics in the 19th century. And we just don't have, we, we're, we're just beginning to recover a lot of this work. And so Plato, um, she writes, especially her First of August poem, which is what I spend the most time on in that chapter. And First of August poetry itself seems to be just an enormous popular genre. Um, everybody's writing it. And so hers seems to me representative, but it's not only representative of Black poetics in the period, but it's also representative, I think, of um, of women's poetics. And so and there's this intersection between Black poetics and and the figure of the poetess and um, and feminized poetics that I'm really interested in in um, in in the entire book, right? So I kind of set it up in the Anne Plato chapter and then come back to it at the end of the book with the poetess. Yeah, there's a kind of refrain throughout the book. I think also maybe this is a another way into some of what we're talking about of um, how these um, poets kind of uh, saw lyricization coming, no, um, and how um, uh, a, a lot of their writing, uh, in a way, and anticipates uh, and is in some ways um, uh, a response to something that will then come to pass, no, in um, in in the rest of the nineteenth century. So, could you talk about what what it, what it is you mean when you say that they saw lyricization coming and what that and how that process then kind of un unfolds and, and proves them to be to have been absolutely right also uh, in the book's <laughs> argument yeah <clears throat> I don't think it was hard to see coming you know that was the thing I mean um uh so in Plato's case you know I I talk about it as a kind of um, you know, almost passively putting these things into conversation with one another, you know, the nationalizing impulse of abolition. Um, so she's talking about British manumission, right, as something that hasn't happened yet in the in North America, right, where in fact enslavement is expanding at that moment. And she's a free woman in Connecticut. Um, so she's she's in a way kind of mapping these discourses onto each other, right? And pointing out the way they don't really fit um, and that there's no real position from which to apostrophize. That's the figure I'm thinking of here to address, right? To create this kind of mode of poetic address that would have any agency in this process. Um, and in fact, she's really pointing to the pathos of indeterminate agency, um, that I think, you know, becomes associated with romantic poetics generally, but here it's very located, right, in a political moment. And I, and I think for somebody like um, Whitfield, James Murray Whitfield, who's in such, you know, Matt Sandler calls him the heavy metal of 19th century black poetics, and he really is. Um, uh, you know, it's not passive, right? It's so, he's, he's, he's just furious. And 
Um, and he has, a, you know, a poetics in which he, I mean, his America, right? You know, that land of blood and cruel and wrong, you know, he's just absolutely sending up any nationalist discourse that pretends to, you know, actually be able to claim anything like freedom and liberty in a land in which enslavement is expanding. And so, um, and again, you know, Whitfield is a free man doing this and he's called the barber poet. He hated that because he was identified with his profession. Um, but, um, but, but he's, he's, he's a Freemason, a black Freemason involved in Prince Hall Freemasonry with uh, Martin Delaney. And they are black nationalists uh, and they're looking for a place um, in which, you know, there would be something like a free black state, right? So he is actually, so I think Plato's, Plato's actually, you know, sort of pointing out in some ways that there's no such nationalist platform. Right, okay. He's, he's, he's looking for one. I mean, he actively looked for one in, in Costa Rica and Haiti. He ended up in California thinking he could make it in California. And of course that didn't happen either. And so this is why uh, these poets kind of uh, innovate a way of thinking about personhood, right, in its position within the poem, um, which we might think of in the kind of usual, let's say, standard narrative as sort of romantic alienation from an industrialized yeah. society, but actually uh, here has a has a much more precise grounding in 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 historical conditions, no. Um, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, could you can we bring in um, Phyllis Wheatley as well? Uh, because mm. that, that chapter on her is also very important in terms of this idea of depersonification or personification and resisting ways in which you might be forced to sort of uh, assume a personhood. No, that you're that you're that you're actually prevented from from taking on. Yeah. So um, so so each of the chapters in the book focuses on a poetic figure mm-hmm. or, you know, some elements kind of fundamental element in poetics, right? So the, the, uh, the Whitfield chapter I was just talking about focuses on apostrophe. The and the and Plato chapter is really about abstraction and more general way, the abstraction, as you said, of the person. And, but then the Wheatley chapter is really about the figure of personification. And since the figure of personification is really a privileged figure in, 18th century poetics, um, I think about personification and Wheatley because Wheatley is using all of the all of the techniques of 18th century Anglo poetics. Um, uh, the couplet, uh, there's you know she she really just uh, my my language for what she does to the couplet is that she. Um, she uh, replaces its software, mm. but you know, in in Jericho Brown, so Jericho Brown has these sonnets that he calls gutted sonnets. He calls duplexes, and I think that what Wheatley's doing is gutting the couplet. Um, but one of the ways in which she guts the couplet is also on the basis of the figure of personification, which is such a privileged figure in 18th century poetics, and she just over and over has this extraordinary moments of depersonification, moments when she creates a personification or adopts one, and then that personification just falls apart or is scattered or is disseminated or destroyed. And 
um, it's interesting. I looked and looked, and there doesn't seem to be any terminology either in the 18th century or in contemporary poetics for depersonification, um, which is interesting because it's something I think we all recognize happens all the time in poems. But 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 in Wheatley, as you say, it's it's like the political motivation and. In, in Plato and in, and in Whitfield and all the figures I talk in, certainly Douglas, right? And certainly, you know, all the figures I talk about in the book, um, that Wheatley's position as an enslaved teenager and a, and a tr- deeply traumatized enslaved teenager who is also, as they called her, the sable prodigy, right? This extraordinary technician. Um, uh, she was the one, you know, she's she basically takes that, figure of personification and reorients it so that, you know, you can't like it, the fictions crumble, but what's left is the person. And because Wheatley is so famous, that is, she becomes identified. There's no poem you read of Wheatley's in which the point isn't that Wheatley wrote it Mm. um, in the 18th century or now that she's, she is, she, the, her person upstages her poem. Uh, and so in that way, I think in many ways, she is the, the, you know, the, the, the book's called Inventing American Lyric, which is clearly a kind of gesture toward a kind of a null school idea of historical poetics. Right. But, but I think we, if there is an inventor, you know, like a, an origin of some way in some sense, um, it's, it's Wheatley. Mm. And the chapter is also a really um, just kind of it's a great guide to the the persistence in her reception of this this mm. kind of need to locate her as a person. Maybe here we could talk um, because it's kind of I mean this phrase the genre of person is is scattered across the book. Um, uh, sometimes at very important points um, and. Uh, Yes, and it has to do obviously with everything we've been talking about and, and lyricization. Um, but c- could you could you describe a little about about where that phrase comes from and, and what it's doing across the across the chapters? So part of the part of my idea about lyricization, um, the way in which all these genres collapse into some big idea of poetry lyric. identified uh-huh. as lyric, like um, it you know has to do with. Um, what I say in the book is that the genre of the poem becomes the genre of the person or is replaced by the genre of the person. And, and um, so the crossing of race and gender in the 19th century, the genre of the person is foregrounded, but also abstracted uh, so that the genre, so the person, right. Even the definite article is something, <laughs> the obvious giveaway. Um, you know, what is the status of the person? So of course, enslaved people are not right. Legally people. Um, and neither of course are, are women until the coverture in 1853, but even after that, right. They don't vote until 1920. So 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 there's a material basis, right, for the questioning of the status of the person, but the way in which it works itself out in these poems is that the abstraction of the person actually, you know, abstracts the genre of the poem at the same time. If, for example, to take Wheatley, if her person is more important than the fact she's writing an opinion, for example, um, in the the beautiful Niobe poem, uh, then... 
um, then you were going to read it on the, on, you know, in relation to Wheatley, which is a kind of an also interesting dialectic, right? Given what we were saying about the speaker, the way in which the author is supposed to be displaced by the abstract speaker. And so I don't know if this is the place for me to say this, but this is actually only half the book I meant to write. So I meant it to be all the 19th century, but that was just crazy, of course. And so I'm, I'm now finishing the second half. Um, and in the second half ends with Dunbar and the dialect speaker. And I think that the die, and so that's not feminized, right? That's a, that's a, you know, a, a dialect speaker that, um, really kind of fetishizes and, and, and objectifies this, as you said, alienated speaker of lyric in a way that, um, is really important for then what happens to American modernism. Okay. And is the new book kind of structured in a similar way in that there'll be there's a sort of rhetorical figure or or kind of uh, no okay it's a no it's really three poets um uh so it's uh it's Walt Whitman um and Albury Olson Whitman and Paul Dunbar so they're all men um the the thing about the Whitman and the Dunbar right is that people say of American poetry that you know Whitman invented. Uh, modern American poetry, it's kind of common to think of Whitman as the beginning and um, and that Dunbar is, you know, there's a huge debate, right, in, in the history of Black poetics about Dunbar. I mean, James Weldon Johnson says in 1925, you know, alas, right, he's so important and yet we need to break free of these folk forms and make a new modern American Black lyric that we need to not do the dialect thing anymore. I mean, in fact, Johnson in his autobiography says he gives Dunbar a copy of Whitman and says, this is the way you should write. Okay. And Dunbar is like, throws it across the room. So, so it, you know, there, there, it's counterintuitive to think of Dunbar as the beginning of, as a turning point anyway. And in the idea of the abstract speaker and the dramatic situation and modern poetics. But I do think that's actually what happens. So yeah, that's, yeah, that's that. That's the book that's not there yet, but to come, but you're right about, you're right. I think about this book before modernism. I mean, modernism doesn't happen for a long time. It's a kind of prehistory. It's kind of trying to replace that narrative of, British romanticism to American romanticism, American modernism, rather, by saying, like, look, there's this other thing that happens. Yeah, and also I read it even as, I don't know how to express this, but it's not as in, it is a periodization as in before what we understand to be modernism, but the book is also at pains to, like we said earlier about um, when you describe kind of poets seeing things coming. So it's also at pains to try and understand historically what that moment was before modernism was there no which is um that's a very important part of its its argument which is obviously part of its historical perspective yeah um sorry and well i mean i think you can especially see that with francis ellen watkins harper who is just such an extraordinary poet and everybody you know it's funny everybody knows she's an amazing poet but 
people still kind of patronize the early poetry by saying it's sentimental, it's just conventional, that word we were using before. You know, it's basically giving people what they want for the popular abolitionist cause. But Frances Harper, you know, she lives from 1825 to 1911. Like she's in the entire 19th century. And she does so many different kinds of activist, Black feminist work. Um, And she really is a person who who understands i think as you say sees something coming in 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 uh in the way in which poetics being used especially for kind of nationalist triumphalist white purposes and she's she's amazing yeah um maybe just um kind of a as a sort of final question or, or something that i really wanted to ask you about which maybe doesn't fit in a chapter because it's a methodological question, really, which is slow reading, um, Mm. which you mentioned early on, and then the chapters kind of demonstrate what is slow reading. What is slow reading? Yeah, you know, slow reading is a phrase, so I kind of ironically borrowed from Ruben Brower, who is uh, really, you know, yeah, slow reading is really a phrase borrowed from Ruben Brower. And so, you know, that's ironic because he's an American, uh, first Amherst, and then he works with Robert Frost and then Harvard professor who um, who then trades Helen Bindler and Paul DeMond, Stephen Orgel, all these people who go on to really be theorists of how you read poetry. And uh, and so, so he really believes in the dramatic fiction um, of the speaker. Uh, and so I'm actually using his phrase to do something very different, which is to think about um, what the way I think about slow reading is that, you know, in a historical pers- uh, uh, poetics perspective, it takes a long time to read a single poem because not everything actually is on the page. You know, we're trained as close readers to read the text and only the text or as practical readers to read the text, but things keep popping out of it. So, for example, that Harper poem, Eva's Farewell, which is just a really small, apparently marginal poem, right? Things just kept popping out of that poem. Um, Songs and, and things that were very much outside the text, and so slow reading takes, I mean, it's just, I just mean it in a literal sense. It takes a long time <laughs> to read a poem that way. <laughs> and yeah, but it's also, it's this wonderful feeling of staying with the text, even whilst you've kind of, you're kind of looking elsewhere, right? But the text is always there, you know? It still has a closeness to it. I think you talk about this as well. It's not, it's not in any way divorced from the text, but it's trying to kind of place it. Well, that's really time. true, which brings us back to what you were saying earlier, pointing anyway to Benjamin's, you know, and Adorno's or Frankfurt School idea of the of the um, autonomy of the work of art, right? To what extent is so reading really focused on the text itself? And yeah, I would agree with you. It's both and, of course. Yeah. Wonderful. Um, well, you've already mentioned that the next the next project <laughs> is part two. Part two, um, because they didn't finish it. Sure. Okay. And are you working on on anything else 
Um, so that part too is called the poetry of the future, okay. which turns out to be a phrase that not only Marx uses, but Whitman uses, and they may get from each other. So that's kind of interesting. And uh, I know. I didn't know. And, uh, and, and, um, uh, and then I'm writing a little piece, uh, a little book, I think, called What is Poetry? Okay. Which is where we started, really. Um, right. Thank you so much for um, talking to us today. Thank you. And uh, thank you for listening.